This podcast is brought to you by Media 8. Welcome to Off the Cuff with Kel, conversations from the front line, a podcast and live show for survivors and the leaders who support them. I'm your host, Kelly Humphreys, a survivor of child sexual abuse, advocate, author, speaker, ambassador, a lover of all things outdoors with over 15 years of law enforcement experience. Please support me in my mission to break cycles of abuse and trauma. You can help by donating to my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Kelly Humphreys. Hello guys, welcome to Off The Cuff With Cal. We're at episode number 14 already. I don't know how that happened, but we're here. Um, I'm so excited to have my dear friend Renee with me tonight. She's a freaking legend. Um, so, but uh, look, I'm going to do the mandatory disclaimer because we're just going to like totally go straight into it. Um, but yeah, we, we will be talking about some tough stuff tonight. We're going into systems of silence and I couldn't think of anyone better to uh join me on this conversation then uh renee michelle uh she's got a hell of a story and um can really sort of talk to this topic so there will be some tough stuff if you find that the content is triggering there's some support numbers on my website at kellyhumphreys.com so renee i just i could introduce you but i would love you to just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and then um, we'll go in and share some of your story Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Kel. It's so exciting to be here. You know, as you said, we've been friends for quite some time and I am a huge supporter of you and cheerleader and have been in your corner since I first met you. Uh, kindred spirits in many ways. No, <laughs> no all on, you know, honestly, babe, just, um, yeah, huge heart for you and for what you do. So, yeah, so I um, am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, my abuse started at home. Uh, my mum became an alcoholic when my mum and my father separated. And unfortunately, her lifestyle became something where she would go out and meet men, bring those men home and leave them at home with me. So she would go to work and unbeknownst to her, those men uh, started abusing abusing me. And I, all my sisters had moved out of home by then. Um, she was all I had. So seeing my mum go out and have what appeared to be a great time and, you know, and then be someone that had this horrible thing that potentially could make her life even harder or worse, mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that to my mum. So I stayed silent. Yeah. And internally I was breeding so much resentment for her but again, like I said, she was all I had in the world. And the people that I trusted most, not only from those men that she brought home, but family, friends, um, friends of mine from school, their fathers, um, I became a target. I became just, I guess, preyed upon by people who could see my vulnerability, who could see that I didn't have a dad at home or any brothers or even really a mother that really kept watch on me. I was allowed to pretty much roam around and do what I liked. So I pretty much, I think, had a target on my back. And because I had no voice, because I had no one to turn to, um, I internalised that abuse that was happening to me and blamed myself. So I stayed silent until I was 26 years old. So I didn't tell a soul. Yeah, wow. I I, um, I know you've got, uh, a, and I want to make sure I get it right, battle scars are beautiful, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, um, I've read half of it. <laughs> I haven't got through the whole thing yet. But it's a lot. 
um, it is a, a beautiful story um, of resilience and like <laughs> you've definitely come through uh, just a, a whirlwind of, of, you know, adversity. I, I guess there's no other real word for it, mm. but, um, you know, I, I think, and some of the things I wanted to talk about tonight was around systems of silence, obviously, but how the family mm. keeps us silent. Like uh, a lot of the, um, the the women, men and women in, in, in my communities that obviously, you know, listen and, and, and follow me on social media, they often have unprotected parents or people that haven't listened to them or believed them. Mm. Uh, and it's been a real sort of struggle to find healing because how can you heal when you don't have people around you to support you? So um, I can imagine it must have been very difficult. I, I too felt silenced, but I I didn't have a mother who didn't care or a, a dad who didn't care. I just didn't feel safe enough to say anything in case, yeah. you know, I get my butt kicked by by my perpetrator. Um so yeah, but the the family as a, a an institution as uh, you know silencing, uh, what was that like? Like, yeah, it, Kel, it was really confusing because, like I said, you know, it was just me and my mum for many many years. Yeah. My sisters were a lot older; they'd left the home, and it was just me and my mum. So I felt very close to her, very protective of her. A lot of these men used to beat her. Um, a lot of the men were very, very violent. We'd be sitting, you know, whoever that man was that, that month, um, you know, because sometimes I would just wake up in the morning and there'd be some dude sitting at the kitchen table and I'd be like, oh, okay, that's what this guy is that we've got at the moment. Literally that's how frequent it was. There was no conversation between my mum and I. It was just like, hey, <laughs> come out for breakfast and be some random dude at the breakfast table. Mm. You know, sometimes those plates would go flying. So I spent a lot of time walking on eggshells. I started self-harming around that time. So, you know, looking back and as I was writing my story up for that first time, I could see there was just so much internalised torment and pain because I had nobody to tell. And that it created anger in me as well, you know. He was a woman that, you know, I wanted to protect me. I should have seen my pain or so I thought, you know. I was covering those self-harm marks by then. So in summertime wearing, you know, long long shirts and everything to cover up. And you know what? My mum never asked, not teachers never asked, nobody picked up that this vivacious, happy young girl, which is what I was pre-abuse and even as at the beginning, became so introverted and shy and awkward and I would withdraw and I lost all my friends. And so not only was I silenced at home, nobody else seemed to notice or give a crap either, to be honest. Um, you know, it was back in the early 90s, like 80s and early 90s. Nobody noticed, nobody asked. And when I very, very first told or wanted to tell someone, which was my husband back then, my ex-husband, he sort of retreated, like his face said everything. It was horror, it was disgust. And he would make really horrible comments like, oh, well, there's a pattern here and that pattern is you. Mm. So mm. I sort of went, oh, may maybe it is me. And that silenced me even further. Yeah. It's interesting you say that and I, <laughs> the thought just fell out of my brain. This is <laughs> this is the way my week has been, I tell you now. Um, but you know, it's it's wanting to say something, I think, but then not feeling safe. And I remember so many times, and, and you probably can uh, identify with this, is like I would just kind of look and, and look at my mum and be like, can't you, like, see what's, like, 
hoping and, and pleading with my eyes like uh-huh. Look, uh-huh. it's like do you know what's going I'm trying to tell you with my eyes but I can't physically say the thing right I hundred percent yeah yeah, yeah. And, it, and you know and as a child you don't have words I didn't understand what was happening to me I didn't have the, the language to say because you know and the and the words that they would say to me you know you're unlovable you're you know they'd cuss me out and you know call me horrible names and they say I was stupid and disgusting and and that that was pretty much the only language that was said to me around those incidences so that's what I hung up to hung on to and I I disassociated each time I I was sexually assaulted so I would just you know zone out when I would come back into my body there was that sensation obviously of pain but huge confusion you'd be like did that just happen did I, you know, because I would pretend to be asleep because I would freeze. So then I blame myself too. So it was silence upon silence upon silence. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's good that you, uh, well, I'm glad that it's not good, but it's, I'm glad that you referred to disassociation because so many victim survivors don't understand uh, what that's about and they feel then obviously complicit in what's happening. Yeah. And I think that um, it's really valuable to talk about uh that particular part of it as being uh, silencing. So you have that trauma response, uh, what you then do with that and how you uh, respond to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So obviously when I was a kid, I didn't really understand that, right? And what I've come to learn since, you know, I I went to university later in life, I thought, so that I could become a counsellor to help others. But I think a real large part of it was um, to learn myself about what had happened to me and how to cope, right? And one of the first things I learned about was disassociation and freezing, you know, those trauma responses, you know, why did I freeze? Mm. There's so many people, you know, and we see it and we hear it all the time. Um, this re-victimization was, you know, why were you there? <laughs> did you run? What were you wearing? Were you intoxicated? You know, like we're, is this, third degree that as survivors we go through right which is again another silencing you know I guess situation that keeps us quiet because we don't have the answers so disassociation was my body and my brain's way of coping with a situation that was so overwhelming I could not process it and how can a 10 year old brain process that sort of thing you can't no your body your body reacts before you even have a moment to think what's going on no that's right and like I I talk a lot um about the freeze response right because in that freeze response it's like you're completely numb right you you're at that point where you just cannot move and Mm -hmm. it's in that moment that you're like uh, almost feel like you you gave consent right it's like and and it's not because you you believe that you gave consent, but when somebody's when you're like disclosing and talking to someone, well, did you say anything? Did you do anything? Why didn't you do something about that? And you know, it, it becomes that whole victim blaming thing, right? Yep. The, the, and again, it's that language. I remember speaking to my my partner. Now we've been together ten years, and and he's an ex cop. So as you could relate, he's so used to hearing part of that situation, right? And it's usually yeah. the end result. And then that's it. Um, so he's learned a lot as well. And, you know, when I try to explain to him when this happened, there actually was no thought process as the attack is happening. 
Yeah. I am literally staring at a wall and that's the last thing I can remember. I don't remember a physical sensation. I no. just remember blank, just blank. And then when I came back into my body was usually uh, like the, the millisecond after it had stopped. That's when I'm suddenly back in my body and all I can feel is pain and fear, pain and fear. Yeah. I, I think people get really, victim survivors get really cranky at themselves because they think, oh, I, I didn't stop this. I didn't change yeah. this. I didn't do something. But it's actually just a normal trauma coping response, right? We, we, we get really angry. We blame ourselves. We're like, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I did this. And you just cannot break out of it. And I actually tell young girls, because I used to work in residential rehabs, Kel. So yeah. I used to say to young girls, actually, your brain is so amazing and your yeah. body is so brilliant that it kept you alive in that situation. In that fraction of a second, your brains went, I can't deal with this. It's too much. And it preserved you through, you know, one of the most terrible things you will ever go through. But it did that to bring you out the other side. That's yeah. how cool your body is. And they start sort of going, oh. So rather than, because I, I loathed my body. I hated it. I would punch it, cut it, hurt it in any way I could because I felt so betrayed by it. But once you actually start to learn it was self-preservation and really get into how that works, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I often say I, I, I totally agree with you as well because we label uh our feelings and emotions um you know why am i so uh numb from this i should be really angry i should be this i should be that mm. it's actually just our bodies doing what our bodies do and uh like you said i i've beat myself up for many years you know mm. the shit that i said to myself and yeah. self-talk about like fucking hell i'm freeze fucking what's wrong with you and like you know i was just never i'm still not very kind to myself those close to me like hell come on like you shouldn't be talking shit to yourself like that i'm like oh oops you know <laughs> well, we're so bad at it right we we always hold ourselves to such a high degree much higher than we hold other people that's why we find it so hard to forgive ourselves when we screw up right yeah 100%. but once you start learning that it's it's almost learned behavior and and this was the thing that i found out uh, quite early in my journey when i started healing which i think is really really pivotal for people to understand your very first time you're sexually assaulted, particularly for people like myself who was stuck in a family where it was repeated abuse and went on for many years, how you were abused the first time and how your body responded and how you reacted, plus was there someone you told and how did they react will form how you heal, right, and how yeah. you deal with trauma going on. So, A, I was abused at 10, right? Two, I had no one to talk to, so I stayed quiet. And three, it continued to happen. It was like literally the worst case scenario you could have, okay? And so because I froze that first time, every other time it happened, it, was like it became default behaviour. My body just did that. And, you know, Kel, even now, I'm 48 this year, if I'm around an environment, we won't go there, but if I'm around an environment, particularly men, where there's alcohol, so if that's why I don't go out. But if I'm around, if there's drunk men and they start arguing, I freeze. There's certain triggers that I have in my life 
that my body just kicks in. I don't have a chance to go, ooh, this is scary. I don't like it. Shut down. No, it just happens. Because somebody will say to me, Renee, 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 and I've sort of got to come back to myself. So this is where we've got to start being so kind to ourselves. The best thing we can do is understand and start to learn about the human body and then actually start being really grateful and just in awe of how complex and how amazing our our bodies and our systems are at just keeping us going and making us resilient. Yeah. Well, we're born to survive, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. And and we get a choice on how we're going to deal with that. And in in my course that I'm, I'm creating, I've come up with a bit of a process to kind of deal with those triggers because I really believe in uh, just being able to kind of like embrace those triggers as part of our like our walk, right? Like, so it shouldn't yep. be like all of a sudden you get a trigger and then that's it. It's just too big. It's too much. And you just can't mm-hmm. go forward. Right. So it's kind of just a stepping stone and it needs to be a stepping stone because otherwise, you know, when we get that trigger, it just shoots us straight back into that cycle. Right. We, yeah. don't, we don't move through it. We don't grow from it. We just like, I can't deal with that. We shut down and, that's it, right? We just repeat the same patterns of behaviour all the time. Yeah, we've got to start celebrating and being kind to ourselves rather than loathing it and getting, because that will keep us stuck, right? The more we self-flagellate and go, oh, I'm the worst person and, oh, it was all my fault or I'm just so crap at this or I'm just such an idiot, that stuff keeps us stuck. Yeah. You know, that that's not survivor conversation. No. That is ourselves. Like we get angry at people for keeping us victimised or systems but we actually do it to ourselves yeah we do got to be really really careful we can't get pissed off at the world around us for doing that when we're actually the worst at it ourselves we've got to be better with this thing (laughs) yeah and actually I'm so pleased you said that because I I mean it wasn't in the notes I wrote to myself about what what I might talk about tonight um but it's one of those things where I think for look there are systems around us like advocacy places support groups you know law uh, like law enforcement agencies courts and things like that that aren't great right the systems are not perfect um but they're getting better and they're getting better because the survivor's voice is becoming louder right about what we need and all those types of things and it takes our voices but for the most part it's i i honestly believe and correct me if if you think i'm wrong um but i think it comes back to one the grooming from the beginning, right? The emotional manipulation, yeah. the the grooming, the patterns of behavior that the perpetrator has uh, instilled in us to keep us quiet. And that constantly becoming a thing as we try to speak up. Every time we go to speak up, we're like, oh, oh my God, and this, the fear response. But then once we do find that courage and we have the right people around us, the systems aren't that bad. Mm. So we've got the right people around us. I think we can navigate most things well, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying every system is good. No, no, right. of course. But we've got to be in the right, I think, place to be able to take take those things on with the right people. Um, but definitely systems, I, I 100% believe systems are silencing, but I think it's a combination of where you're at as a victim survivor and how informed the organisation is about what a victim survivor needs. But that takes them also being brave about their approach towards victim survivors. Yeah, it, very much so. And you know what? It's language as well, Kel. You know, society still sucks big time at being brave enough to just say <laughs> the stuff that is we know is happening anyway. 
this yeah. and you know sex will always have a stigma around it right and i think that there's so much stigma and misunderstanding around molestation grooming rape all of these things right because so many people i i know me as an adult i was being raped by a boyfriend back in the day and i didn't see that as rape because he was my boyfriend you know and there is still a hell of a lot of people that when i say that are like huh what do you mean we have just got so much work to do when people still think abuse is about purely sex and it's all about power it's all about you know you look back at what has happened to a lot of and and this is not me giving people an out i'm looking i'm playing devil's advocate here and looking at, at it from all avenues because as you would know as yourself kelly and the police i've worked with pedophiles i have worked with in in my workers in community services so i've seen it from all different avenues and you look at what happened to a lot of these perpetrators growing up yeah you know they didn't magically just wake up one day like this you know and, and this is what I'm saying, as society, we've just got to be better at having conversations and not going, oh, this is such an ugly topic, we can't talk about it. That's the problem. That's what silences people because it's ugh, it's not a sexy topic. If you have a campaign for breast cancer, if you have a campaign for anything like that, it's like, whoa, let's jump in behind it. But if you bring out a campaign, let's stamp out child sexual abuse and rape, oh, oh, we can't talk about that at breakfast gatherings. You know, (laughs) that's just too unsightly. Well, bullshit. That's why we need to be talking about it. That's why it's still prolific because we still get squeamish and, you know, enough's enough. Yeah. That's me venting. Done. (laughs) No, that's good. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation. Like, I... I, and that, that's why Off the Cuff exists. It's, I, I created this space because I wanted us to have these conversations so it wasn't shit and it wasn't yuck. And mm-hmm. it's like we're giving people permission to have a voice around something that's been so fucking swept under the rug. Like it's just, you know, like it, we have to normalise conversations around this because that in itself, like uh, that's kind of, I think that's what I was trying to allude to before, like, when we're in these places where, you know, we're hoping someone's going to support us or save us or, you know, say something, you know, it's it's them being able to see it and respond um, because we're trying. We don't always have the courage to say something. We're trying. But sometimes it takes that courage from the other side to say, hey, like, is there something else that you wanted to share with me? Is something going on that you need help with? But that takes, that takes you know, that extra mile, that extra step, and so many people, and you just said it before, uh, are so uncomfortable, right? Like they, they as soon mm-hmm. as you start open this, like they don't know how to respond. Yeah. Uh, they can't hold space. Yeah. Um, you know, they're like, oh god, I can't, I can't deal with that. And <laughs> and I was at a, 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 a symposium, and and Grace Tame was there actually, and she said it really beautifully. And I'm not going to be able to get the quote right, but it was around. Um, you know, don't tell me that I can speak and then when I speak, tell me that I shouldn't have said anything or, um, it, you know, that you can't hear what I've got to say, basically. It was something like that, you know. It's just like, oh, you know, we're telling everyone around us, like, you need to speak up, you need to talk about this and then all of a sudden when you start to raise your voice and they're like, oh, sorry, I don't have time for you. Like, oh, I can't hear that. 
you know? Look, I reckon as a, I think as a society we're still so hypocritical. I mean, look at music. Look at music. Look at clothing. Look at modelling campaigns. Look at the crap we see on TV. I cannot believe as a parent, I mean, my kids are grown now. They're 21 and 18. However, I know sometimes I'll watch something on Netflix and it's and it says PG and I'm like, oh, sweet, that's almost like a kid's movie and then there's a full-on sex scene, right? But that's fine. If I sort of go, oh, that's a bit full-on, I'm a prude, okay? And yet we've got songs that are about, oh, every expletive that you can imagine. We've got young girls scooting down the street with their friends, you know, singing about my friend's a whore and I'm a, I'm a bitch and, you know, yet we can't talk about abuse without no. getting all squirmish and, oh, we shouldn't talk about that. And that's all. I mean, come on. It just, again, because it's awkward. Nobody wants to imagine that their teacher or their coach or their neighbour or their family member is capable of hurting a child. That's what it is. And I remember talking to parents of young children and saying, hey, when my daughter was two, we stopped drying her and bathing her. We taught her how to do those things for herself so that she would have this self-protection mechanism in her in her physical body that nobody had ever touched her in those places, not mum, not dad, nobody. It wasn't this, you know, every you know, hug every uncle and kiss every aunt because it's the polite thing to do. It's like, no, your body is your body. You keep it safe. It's yours. It's nobody else's, right? We didn't fluff about these stuff. And we were happy to call a vagina a vagina and a penis a penis when my kids were little because then that safeguarded them against any games that groomers would play and we'll call it a cutesy little name so that when you say that to mum and dad, they go, oh, there's no harm in that because it's not, do you know what I mean? We, We armed our children with the language and the knowledge and the privacy from a young age so that they would be safeguarded. The amount of parents I spoke to and went, oh, that makes me feel really uncomfortable. Well, you know what I said? I said, tough luck. You've had kids. The days of comfort are way gone. You need to arm your children with ways to keep themselves safe because you're not always going to be there. No. So we do that, get them ready to have the conversations that yeah. are slightly awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah, and it's, and it's hard to... Um... Uh, we we do have to arm them, but we also have to realise that, uh, and it's what you said, we don't want to think about, you know, uncles and and people within our family doing these things, but 89% of children have been sexually abused by someone who is known to them. The Australian Child Maltreatment Study tells us that 25% of Australians have been sexually abused by the age of 18. Mm -hmm. That's one quarter of Australians. It is just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Like it's not okay. And we the, the reason I think it's so prevalent is because it's in our family systems. And who does a child talk to mm-hmm. when the very people that they trust are the same people that are betraying them? So we need safe systems and we need safe schools, safe organisations where children, if they can't speak up at home, they can speak up somewhere else. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we didn't have that stuff when I was at school. I mean, let's be honest. I didn't I didn't tell at home because mum was all I had. Yeah. And then I didn't tell at school because nobody was talking about it. So I didn't understand what was happening to me. And again, I'm thinking it's me. It's my fault. There's something wrong with me. 
Mm. So there's no way, and you know, that that was also at the age that the trauma was starting to show itself physically. So I was starting to lose control of my bladder if I got nervous in school. So I would wet my pants and then I'd be bullied for that. So then the bullying started to creep in. So I just became more inward and more introverted and more shut off from the world around me. So not only didn't I have the language, I now don't have the people. Yeah. So that's why, and, and again, having conversations like this, Kel, across social media streams, using plain language unapologetically. That's how we do it. Yep. And being better at having these things in schools and in workplaces and having these conversations in our lunchrooms that are casual and having more things on the TV and which it has to become very much like domestic violence is now a much more everyday conversation, not something that's done behind your hands and, you know, with embarrassment. Yeah. I think one thing I wanted to drop in there too, because you, you were on a roll, you're doing really well, I love it. <laughs> I love chatting with you. So much fun. Yeah. Um, uh, is the victim blaming thing, right? We're still in a society where uh, we're very opinionated and we don't always think before we say, you know, and we're like, I think we, we want to help and I think we think we're helping when we, we have these, like, off-the-cuff comments and, you know, I might say, oh, Renee, like, you know, I'm just not coping real well. My uncle abused me when I was a kid and I'm really struggling with, you know, my triggers and stuff. And, and if you said something to me like, well, you know, how old were you? Like, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, you know, it's just comments like that. Well, how old were you? Like, did you not, like, could you not say anything? Like, didn't you speak up about it? Or, you know, and it, and it's things like simple as like, um, you know, you're talking about marital rape type stuff. And it's just like, well, you're married to them. So, you know, that's just how it is. Aren't you just, aren't you married to them? Isn't that what you're meant to do? Like all of these yeah. comments of victim blaming and their silencing, by just very nature, sometimes trying to help someone or be like, make somebody feel better. But actually, you're putting someone in a box where they do not feel they can say anything. Like, we're, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Comments that come left of field that they're just like trying to validate your experience or ask more questions about it, but you're actually silencing. Like, I think it probably would be really helpful to talk about ways to support a victim survivor who's disclosing. Yeah. Look, I, I, story, you know, and I think it comes with any type of disclosure, whether it be about childhood sexual abuse, domestic violence at home, yeah. you know, something that is you can tell this person's got something really big on their heart and they've just had the the bravery, the courage to share it with you. Like that's a massive trust thing, right? And I know I've had people come to me that have lost children to suicide. And as a parent, I'm like, poor, you know, I've been through a lot and that is something that I just, you know, can't even fathom. And so that's what I say. And I've spoken to so many people that have had a bad response, myself included, and have gone, so what would have been helpful in that moment? Because let's be honest, if you don't have the skills or the background or you haven't had it happen to you, you know, of course you're not going to know how to respond or the words to use. So say that. Yes. Let them finish what they're saying, hear them, and then say something really simple like, thank you for trusting me with that. That That's big. Yeah. And I don't have the words. I don't know 
what to say. Nothing that I can say is going to make you feel any better. What do you need right now? What do you need me to do? 100%. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And well, if you're going to you, they're not going to say, counsel me, <laughs> give me psychotherapy. I need you to fix me. Yeah. We just want to be heard. We just want to be heard. Yeah. And most of the time it is just that validation and just sort of sitting with someone through that. But if you can't do that, you have to tell the other person. And it's just, it doesn't have to be awkward. You just have to say, look, I, I really appreciate that you trust and trust me enough to tell me that, but I'm not in the best space myself right now. Can we do this another time? Or is there someone else that, you know, uh, I could I could bring into this conversation? Or, you know, if you can't do it and you don't have the capacity, it's it's and it's hard because I know people just trauma dump, right? People just go Bleh, because they're like, I need to get this out, right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we really don't know what to do, and you can't kind of help that. Yeah. Um, but and you know, something like Lifeline yeah. is just you know, and because I always say to people too, when people disclose something, you you, you could be on a lunch break, you could literally be in passing. You could literally be in a situation where you're not going to see this person again or you're not going to have the time to really just sit there and unpack it, right? And, again, most people disclose because in that moment they felt like you're a safe space and it's come up for them and they might have just disclosed a little bit or a whole heap of stuff. I always say to them, you know, after you've responded, wow, that's really big, thank you for trusting me. And, again, I've said to people, I I don't have personal experience with that, but I know... Lifeline is an amazing resource. It's 100% anonymous. Would you like me to help you reach out to someone who knows how to deal with this? The mm. fact that you're willing to say, hey, I don't know the skills, but I want to see you get the help. Yeah. Because that's straight away going, I care about you. Yeah. You're important to me. And beyond this point is important to me. I'm going to be with you while you reach out for that help. Because it's one flipping phone call. And yeah. it's national. Nobody cannot not do that. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, when I first disclosed, I um I was uh 19 um and I and I disclosed to a coach and she the, she did the best thing. She just said, Kel, I can't help you, but let me get you someone who can. And and it was such a simple thing. I actually didn't feel rejected. She's like, I can approve, thank you for telling me that. I can't help you, but let me get you someone who can. Like and it was someone I knew. So I, I felt yeah. good about that. I felt empowered about that. And I was able to then go and make a report. So I think, I think too, like that disclosure thing, um, just as a parent, when a child discloses, I think yeah. it's a very hard thing. So we'll just touch on that briefly because I think it's really important. Um, uh, a, a lot of parents are so afraid of that moment if when their child, you know, goes, oh, my God, um, this is happening to me, you know, what they're going to kind of do there because their first reaction is anger, right? It's like so angry that someone's going to do that. Uh, and we have a choice in that moment, right? We have a choice in that moment about how we're going to respond to that disclosure. And, um, I mean, I have a plenty of ideas of how that should look because my mom, um, if I had have told her, I'm sure she would have been amazing. But mm. when she actually, because she was asking me about it, I remember I was 12, right? She was asking me about whether my uncle had done anything to me, mm. and she was so cranky at the time, and she was red faced because she was upset. Yeah. Um, because she'd heard that he'd assaulted another young young girl, right? And when she asked me, she was just so 
betrayed by him and so upset by him but that anger and that fear had come across to me and I was like I don't know what to say here and and all the things all the things like a like a flood in my head of like all the I can say something no I can't like I'm gonna want to kill myself I'm like oh my god I feel disgusting and but this is the time I could say something all the things all at once and I was just like oh my god um but I but I, I didn't say anything I didn't say anything because I was so scared of how my mum looked and felt at that time that I, I didn't feel safe in that particular moment. And then when that moment had passed, it was gone. Yeah. And it was just that thing, right, that that second, that was only a split second. And uh, I think parents can be so dismissive of kids, right, like you, you're busy and you're cooking and you're shopping and you're cleaning and it's like not now. Not now, right? Mm-hmm. But we, we sort of touched on it throughout this, the courage that it takes to to make that decision to tell. And when you get, and it, and it doesn't matter, it's not just a, a, a parent, but like going into a police station and reporting or picking up the phone to make your first appointment to a psychologist or, mm-hmm. you know, a service provider where you're going in to get help, like that, that fear... And this is this is the systems of silence, right? Like that I wanted to kind of get to. It's like it's the family, it's the parents and the caregivers. When you first, when when you want to make that disclosure, when you want to say something, it's walking into a service provider and knowing that you're going to be safe, that you're going to feel comfortable to share, mm-hmm. that you're not going to feel judged. They're not going to ask you what you were wearing. They're not going to ask you why you didn't say anything, right? Because they understand trauma. They understand responses to trauma is a trauma-informed, and I know I'm going to get a good response. Mm. But that doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen. And and just going back to the parent the parent thing about, you know, how to have that conversation, we're talking about reacting, you know, this point is about reacting when it comes to us. But as a parent, we have to be constantly having those conversations with our children, open conversations with our children about body safety and consent. And that's why I started it with my kids when I was very little. My friends thought I was nuts. They thought I was absolutely psycho by teaching my children the right body parts and so on and so forth. Until as the relationships went on, I explained a little bit about being groomed by the next door neighbor at sleepovers and my best friend's dad at parties. And that's when they became a little bit more savvy, right? And I actually just, I I taught them And I'm a firm believer in constantly reminding your children that your body is, you know, and going through, we've got words, we've got programs, there's so many different, and, you know, Kel, you or I can get this in in people's hands if if they want to know, right? But it's constantly reminding our kids that if something happens to you, mummy and daddy will believe you, all right? We love you. You should always, you have the right to feel safe. And if you ever don't feel safe, if anybody ever hurts you with their words, with their hands, in any way, shape and form, come and tell mum and dad and we will listen to you because, you you know, all that sort of stuff. Not not just wait until we get that disclosure. It's something we have to constantly be priming our children with so that hopefully, you know, we, if it does happen, God forbid, we find out. The first time, not five, six, seven years, ten years, twenty years later, right? So yeah, and if and if your kids do come about that whole, you know, believing your children, 
sometimes they don't have the language. It's really about seeing the the way. I, I didn't have the language. When I said it to my mum, I hinted because, again, I'm about to shatter this woman's world Yeah, that, that's got nothing already, right? So when she said to me, you know, what's your problem? Why are you being such a little shit, basically? Oh, gosh. Was things like, I don't like that person. I don't like him being around the house. I don't like it when he comes over. I don't like it when he comes into my room. Pretty obvious, you would think. But again, mum was an alcoholic, okay? So she wasn't looking. She wasn't healthy. She wasn't hearing what I was saying. But watching how our children relate to certain people, watching their language, why don't they all of a sudden want to hug Uncle John? Why do they retreat to their bedroom when these people come over? You know, I'm... I know I'm talking about pie in the sky stuff, I guess, in a perfect scenario, but we do have to get better at being observant and listening and changing the way that our family systems work. And very much, like I said, don't think it's rude that our kids don't want to hug and kiss everybody. Nurture that in them. Let them know it's actually okay if you don't want to kiss Uncle John with the moustache and you don't want to sit on, you know, Nanny Joe's knee and all that sort of thing. I would hope that we've changed a lot from the way it used to be, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Really encourage your children to have a voice and celebrate the fact that they're vocal and explain things and like stories because that is a massive gift in keeping your kids safe. It really is. Yeah, and you touched on a few things earlier um, about your experience that you were sort of projecting some behaviours and and some signs that were like were there that were pretty obvious. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. What what would you say were some of the big things that you were sort of doing that parents could kind of maybe pick up on? Yeah. I think the biggest the biggest red flag is anything that is just in stark contrast to how your kid normally behaves. <laughs> because like yeah. I said, I was a very outgoing very polite, vivacious, happy kid, would love to play, you know, was very outside all the time. And then I became angry, sullen, quiet, withdrawn. I would never come out of my bedroom. I had a really shitty attitude the way I spoke to my mum because, again, it was this resentment of you're supposed to keep me safe and I love you and everything was really confusing, yet they're coming into our house. Why can't you see? Everything, my grades started slipping. I was always really good at school. Shit, all of a sudden, really bad student. Because I didn't care and I couldn't focus. Started getting bullied at school. Nothing that I would normally be involved in did I want to be involved in anymore, so I withdrew from everything. I mean, that is literally hot and cold differences. If your kids are starting to, and it may not be, hey, they're being sexually abused, but it could, there's something significantly wrong there. And that's when that open dialogue with your kids and that constant conversation of, hey, you can tell mommy something, you know, if something's bothering you. And if you if you don't know how to tell me, that's okay. But if you're not feeling okay about going to school or going to netball or whatever, you can tell me and we can talk about it. Yeah. Because your feelings matter to me and it's yeah. my job to keep you safe. Yeah, I think it's really good you said that because um, I think in a nutshell, it's just ask more questions. But when you ask more questions, it's not not in a way that's like it has to be the open-ended questions because they're the kinds of questions that um, 
a victim survivor is not going to go, well, it's my fault, right? Yeah, it's not a really <laughs> yeah, but it's just like, well, where were you and what were you doing? And when you shoot cannonballs off like that, it, it makes yeah. it, it kind of pushes you back into this little hole where you just don't want to say anything. Yeah, but it's just it, it's about tone and pitch, and especially if it's a child, lower yourself down to the child's level. What look into their eyes? I love you, you're safe. Do it during play. When yeah. you're already relaxed and enjoying yourself. So, you know, if you're if you're pushing your kid on a swing or if you're, you know, just enjoying whatever it is normally do, say, hey, you know that mummy loves you, don't you? You know that you can tell mummy anything at any time and I will believe you because that's my job and it's my job to keep you safe. Yeah. And you can talk to me anytime. You know, if you ever don't feel safe or you're unhappy, come and tell me why and we'll talk about it together. Yeah, and, and a good tip for people too. and and, and I don't know, maybe this is a personal preference, but I, I know many, many survivors disclose to me uh, and, and when they share with me is that when they do disclose, they kind of feel like they're going back into their child self, right? And and I really believe that when we are in that moment where we are sharing, even as adults, exactly what you said in, in just a little bit different way is exactly the same way that an adult survivor needs to be nurtured in that moment mm. like even by a service provider so I know it sounds really cliche but I think it's really really important that we realize when people are sharing in those moments they really need you to hear them and and to feel safe and and, and it sometimes takes you and it might feel really awkward for you but just going look I, I want you to feel really safe with me and that nothing you say to me is going to make me think any different of you. That's it's a big one. it's yeah. saying exactly the same thing you would say to your eight-year-old child. You're saying to your 18, 28, 38-year-old friend mm. who's disclosing, yeah. I love you, mate. Like, I, I, I'm so sorry that that happened. You can tell me anything. I'm not going to judge you for it. Um, how can I support you right now? What do you need? You know, it's not changing. It, it's exactly the same conversation that you would be having with a child as you would an adult. But that moment mm. is so important for um, the not silencing, right? Yeah, yeah, and not victim blaming because, like you just said, no matter at what age this happened, whether it happened when you were 5 or 50, remember the perpetrator is 100% to blame. The victim is a victim because you're a victim. You do, you're not responsible 1%. You're not responsible if you're smashed off your face at the local pub and this happened to you. The perpetrator is the perpetrator. So, you know, these those questions are completely and utterly unnecessary at that point in time of disclosure. It is just, darling, not your fault. I'm 100% here for you. You are safe right now. You know, so, you know, thank you for telling me. Now, let, let you know, what, what do you need? What can I get for you right now? And, again, if you don't know how to do it yourself, flip and ring Lifeline, ring the resources and let that person know that you are going to make sure they get the help that they need. Yeah. And I think it might sound for the, and I, and I know there's a lot of service providers listen um, to, to this podcast, it, it might sound strange to think of having a conversation with someone like that where you where you almost become a little bit unpro I know it's a little bit unprofessional not so corporate not so clinical where you just become really I don't know what's the word help me out here well it's natural and it's real that, there's time for that later 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, that, that stuff comes, but it's not in that moment. That person just has disclosed that probably the worst thing that's ever happened to them, the most traumatizing, yeah. terrifying thing. They want a hug with words. Yeah, yeah. And know that it's, you know, in that moment they're safe. It's, it's not happening right now. All yeah. right? I am with you. Yeah. The rest of that shit comes later. Much yeah, later. That's right. That's right. It's just it's just nurturing them through that moment where they can because you you have to remember when someone's disclosing, they're in fear brain, right? They're in the like back part of their brain where they're just like wanting to survive, they're afraid. So they're not really thinking with the, the cognitive functioning part of the brain, the executive functioning mm-hmm. part of the brain. So we have to take them from A to B, right? And to do yeah. that, we need to lower our pitch and our tone and all those types of things. So it's it's just that moment until they can go, okay, I'm good, all right keeping them in their window of tolerance, you know, uh, doing all the things in order to, you know, get the disclosure. So fear and shame brain, I would say, depending on what part of the journey they're on. For me, it was shame by that stage. I was not so much in the fear, but I was in that deep, deep shame. Oh, this is disgusting. Mm. And this person is going to look at me differently. The moment they said there is... Not one part of that is your fault, Renee, and I'm so, so sorry, and we're going to get that. that, That's massive. We're going to get you the help you need, and I'm going to make sure we get you out the other side of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, So there's just a question, um, Renee, from uh, one of our uh, beautiful listeners. Yeah. About accepting gifts and, um, you know, constant gifting from other people that you don't know. So what advice um, could we give potentially around managing that type of behaviour? Yeah, look, I think I think there's two things here. So for your child or for your foster child or whoever that child is in your care as a caregiver, empowering them to know that they don't have to hug or kiss or return affection to anyone, 100% awesome. That's exactly how they should feel. And to be honest, and I'm I'm pretty, I'm pretty straight down the line here as someone who's raised two kids and worked in you know resi care and 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 child protection for many many years. Screw the people that don't like it. That's yeah. their problem. If an adult is offended or made to feel uncomfortable because a child doesn't want to return certain affections, I'd be more concerned about that adult. I know as an adult, if I if if like a kid goes to cuddle me or something and then changes of mind changes his his or her mind at the last moment, I'm like, good for you. And I high five like celebrate that and high five it. And they usually go, yeah, and they'll high five me in return. Mm. And I think that as an adult, when we're approaching young children, we shouldn't just go straight in with a hug anyway. I find that it's usually the older generations that do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that old, old mindset. Yes. Oh, you know, come here. And if the child doesn't want to return it, they're like, oh, so-and-so is having a bad day today. That's yeah. okay. Let grandpa or somebody feel that way and just say, oh, no, look, it's not personal. They're just they're not really the huggy kind of person. So yeah. empower your children to feel as though they have the absolute right not to feel like they have to do that. And if a if an adult doesn't like it, tough, tough luck on the adult. I think it's... 100% awesome that the kid has been able to feel strong enough to say, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. That's the only response we need to be concerned with. Yeah, and it's so important. I think the other part of this too, and um, Lisa makes a really good point with her question about silent grooming. Mm. Um, I, I uh, For a long time my uncle did this to me. Like he would, 
it's it's little things, um, and and I think of it like desensitization as part of the grooming process in order to then yeah. um, start to commit those sexual offences. You know, and and I don't know if it's particularly exactly what Lisa's saying, but I think it's an important um, discussion to have. Is is this this type of behaviour desensitizes children so that when the sexual offending starts, it kind of feels normal. It's like just the next step. So you know, it is something to be very mindful of. Um, and uh, I think that's the part where we get back to the real 101 of basic body safety. Yeah. Talking to kids about those feelings. Like when I was for the first time, I, and I remember my uncle pulled me really close and I could feel those butterflies and he grabbed me on the bum and he's like, he's pulled me in and I could, I felt really sick and I, and I, but I didn't know what that feeling, it just was really confusing because he was my uncle, right? Yeah. And, He'd already done the grooming stuff. I just, I didn't know that that's what it was. You, you, you as a child don't know. But if I hadn't known that those feelings were scary and it, it, it was not nice and I, and I knew that I could talk to someone about it, I think it would have potentially had a different outcome. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you, Kelly. And that, it's like tickling games, right, and games where just personal space is so invaded. And that's why... Uh, you know, teaching Cassidy, my daughter at two and three, how to dry herself and, and bathe herself. And it's because if anybody else touched her in those areas that she'd never been touched on, her physical alarm bells will go off. Her physical body will say, oh, nobody's ever done that. There's something wrong with this. When everybody mm -hmm. baths your child and they run around naked and everybody hugs and kisses and, and tickles and plays and your body's not going to react to anything because it's just a friggin', you know, take what you want. And the child doesn't know because everybody does it. And and that's what I mean. I mean, that's an exaggerated sense, but that's what it actually does when you teach your children the correct body parts, that mum or dad don't touch, this is yours, it's private, it's special, and you give it the right language. Because I 100% I guarantee you the first time anybody does something wrong to that child, they're going to come home and say, hey, mum, so-and-so touched me on my vagina today and I didn't like it. Hello? And and that's, and it will be so natural because that's what happens. You're encouraging your child that there's nothing wrong with telling me this. And then there's the two conversations that are happening, the one where you're swearing and cursing and screaming <laughs> yeah. and going, holy fuck, what do I do now? <laughs> and the one where you're like, you know, having this like disassociated conversation with your child going, it's okay because <laughs> inside you're going to be freaking out. I get it. But try to try to hold on to that um, immediate fear reaction. Because um, it will shape everything your child makes sense of in that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. It will shape exactly in that moment what they think about what's happened and if they're in trouble or not. Yeah. And and it's actually just on that too. A lot of the times this grooming and these things that are happening, uh, remember, are with people that the child knows. And so there's this automatic, uh, this, and it's cognitive dissonance, right? It's when, you, when your mind thinks something but it's in direct conflict with, like your morals and your values and what you know to be true and right, but then you've got this other thought going, well, this is wrong, but this is my uncle. So, you know, so you've got this contrasting thing going, which is where the confusing confusing touch comes in and this, you know, whole side of things where you just don't really know what to do. So your brain is just having this fight with itself, even as a child, you know. Yeah. Um, so having these conversations and being able to talk about them is very difficult. 
uh, for, for children. So um, when you get angry, and I have to say this because this has happened to me so many times, uh, is is you know, and I've got two dads. And my uh, my dad is like anyone anyone who touches you or ever hurts you, I'm gonna fucking kill them, right? <laughs> right, I'm gonna kill them. Most of the time, and, and look, what dad doesn't say that, right? But when it's a family member, you have to remember this: some the child doesn't always want the perpetrator to be hurt or harmed, or mm. they don't want to think of them being locked up or put away or those types of things. They just want it to stop. Mm. This might be really hard for parents and caregivers to understand because, of course, we just want to beat this person up. We probably have really harmful thoughts of what we would like to do to this person. Um, you know, we want to beat the crap out of them. We want them to be locked up. We want them to be arrested. And we want it to, like, do something. Like, you just, that rage is just so, like, how dare you fucking hurt my child, right? Mm. But the child is so confused and torn in, in, in this space because it's someone that, they love and they care for that's loving and caring for them and yet there's this confusion of knowing that this thing is wrong so that's what's hard and that's where we have to be really gentle um but i, I do have to say 98 percent of children are seen to be telling the truth it's a statistic believe kids believe victims when they come forward to organizations uh, when someone makes a disclosure like this, they're not making this up. You can't make this shit up. Children cannot make this shit up, right? Yeah. So we have to come to a place that when people are disclosing that we we hold them in a safe place, we nurture them in that moment. Yes, we might have to talk to them like they're a child, but it's it's not in a way that's condescending. It's Correct. open yeah. and it's, open and it's embracing uh, them in that moment, and it might be hard for you to do that, mm. but it's it's most likely what they need in that moment and if you're not sure just ask yeah yeah you know yeah. and i've noticed that lisa lisa's just put a comment on here you know trying to help you know their children especially when they're very young differentiate between good and bad people and that's the thing the old stranger danger campaign didn't work because it's not a man with a floppy hat hiding in a bush ready to jump out and scream at your kid and steal them and that's what i used to think as a child so when it turned out to be people in my own home coming into my bedroom and in my bed, you know, people that my mum was having breakfast with and that I was supposed to be kind and polite to, you know, the very people I was supposed to trust with my care were the people that were hurting me. You can't differentiate between good and bad. You just have to empower your children that certain things are not okay, you know, and that's what, again, I mean about the more they learn about consent. And one of the things that I taught my daughter when she went to church of a weekend, she loved our kid's pastor. And he spent a lot of time at our house because her youth leader was, you know, very close to us as a family. So she's used to playing out of out of church time with this person. He was like part of the family. Became over familiar. So when she would go to church, she would go to hug and kiss him and then all the kids wanted to do it. So what we taught her was you need to ask this person, hey, can I give you a hug? And again, they brought in high fives instead. It's the same amount of love, but it's about high fives, being respectful. Hey, if you want to give someone a hug, can I give you a hug? Or that person might just go, how about we just high five and that's okay, or fist pump or whatever. So it's about teaching our children consent. And then that, don't worry about whether trying to teach them this is a good person or a bad person. That's too hard. That ship has sailed, all right, because we all have good and bad days. 
It's just about empowering them with language and tools and techniques that they can use to keep themselves safe. Then they don't have to worry about the other person. They're going out in the world to know how to manage themselves in a much better way than just hoping that they meet a good person that day. Yeah. And, and I think we're about to run out of time, but I think one really important thing too is if you do have like foster children and children who've already been through extreme trauma, a lot of this stuff is so normalised and those boundaries are just not there. Um, yeah. You know, they don't have the ability to make those decisions in a way because they've been, you know, the wiring is is, is kind of a bit fried in there. And, and I know that sounds terrible, but it's, it's true. Like when you've been so... Uh, you know, traumatized from a young age, we really, ha we can rewire, we can rewire the brain, but it takes discipline, it takes repetition, it takes patience, and it takes love. So, um, you know, it, and it's got to be safe, it's got to be safe. And those conversations have to be really empowering. So um, I just encourage you guys, like, just, just if, if you're going to hold space, hold it safely. And um, if you can't hold that space, let, let them know, it's just be really honest. Um, I don't really know what else to say about that. It's it's just say it how it is and, um, you know, hold hold space where you can and if you can't, you need to look after yourself as well. 100%, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, look, we can, I think we need to carry this on because I want to talk more about institutions and we just didn't quite get there tonight. <laughs> but, um, uh, we had a few technical issues, but we, I think we managed a pretty bloody good conversation, Renee, so I'm hoping you'll come back. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to do a panel. I want to do a panel on, on Systems yep. and, and count me in love it all right guys so thank you um if you have been uh part of our wonderful audience tonight i appreciate you so much supporting this podcast um and just being able to comment and helping us to break down these cycles by just allowing these conversations to happen so renee thank you for being here thanks babe uh until next time guys and until next time renee thank you so much and we'll see you again soon <laughs> see you guys bye Thank you so much for being part of Off The Cuff with Kel. Breaking cycles of abuse and trauma is not something that can be done alone and requires all of us working together. Your support makes a huge difference. If you've found the content of this podcast valuable, you can support my work through my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Kelly Humphreys. You can also find me on all major social media platforms. Through my website, kellyhumphreys.com, you can contact me for speaking in workshops as well as purchase my first book, Unscathed Beauty. If you found any of the content today distressing, please reach out to appropriate support agencies in your country. For emergencies, contact your local law enforcement agency.